everyone. Thank you for joining us today. This is a podcast from the Ojai Institute, which is an initiative of the Carolyn Glasso Bailey Foundation and a platform for engagement and learning that celebrates the unique vision of artists. The Ojai Institute is committed to artists and to free thought and dialogue. I am Lila Glasso Francis, president of the board of the Carolyn Glasso Bailey Foundation, and I am proud to bring you today a conversation between our executive director, Frederick Jonka, and artist Brian Calvin. A California-born and raised artist, Brian Calvin, is occasionally compared to David Hockney and to Alex Katz, but Calvin takes a more existential approach to portraiture, treating the human face and sometimes the body as a self-contained landscape. He received his BA from Berkeley and his MFA from the Art Institute of Chicago. Brian lives and works currently in Ojai, California. Please sit back and enjoy. Welcome. So Brian Calvin is a painter based in Ojai, originally from California, and uh, did his MFA at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which I did my uh, undergrad at (laughs) Art Institute of Chicago. So we had some nice conversations about that. I actually want to start our conversation today with a recent project that you've just completed, I think, at the beginning of the year, but you were commissioned uh, in the fall to do a installation at the Met Opera in New York, which is rather a prestigious commission, and, um, and so I was very excited to follow along um, the, the journey on your, on your Instagram and, and story. <laughs> Uh, but would you maybe uh, tell us a little bit about how that project developed and, and a little bit about the project? Yeah, I guess. Um, thanks, everyone, for being here, by the way. And um, it started uh, Dodi Kazanjian, who curates the space there. There's a small gallery um, that's kind of housed inside uh, the Metropolitan Opera. And so... She and I had been going back and forth with, she just called me after a show I had at the, in the fall in New York at my gallery and wanted to do a project. And I said, that would be amazing. But I figured, of course, this would be years off or it it kind of seemed that way. And then she would call back every few days and we kind of just established a really uh, good working rapport and it seemed interesting. So all of a sudden... She called and just said, would you like to do something in the next season? So basically she sent like a list of all the operas and I, I knew I wanted to do it, but I also felt like, I mean, I have no experience with anything like this. I, I don't have a lot of experience with opera. You know, I, I would say I'm a newbie in that, but music is, I'm very passionate about. So it seemed like, how could I pass this up? Um, and then when she sent it, while reading through, Cosi Fantuti seemed to me the most appropriate thing that I felt like I could quickly enter into that space. And I understood how I would kind of be able to make paintings that worked with the opera without like illustrating them. Um, but the problem with that was it was also the earliest possible show. So the turnaround was already a really short uh, turnaround. Uh, I remember talking with Dodie and I basically said, yes, I'll do it. 
And then I gave myself two weeks to kind of work as hard as I could to develop ideas and start to make a few pieces. And I figured if, you know, if these just like die on the easel or on the wall, uh, it would be fine to call her up and say, eh, it's not going to happen. Um, and ironically, like that ended up being more like three weeks. And then I remember telling her like, yeah, I think this is like, it's good to go. And the next day was when the fire started here. So um, that ended up playing an interesting role itself. Um, yeah. And I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that because I, I think um, w what we're also seeing in this work is sort of, uh, I think we talked about how, um, you know, there's still some unfinished business or unfinished work with, with some of this, yeah. this, this, um, this series. And uh, if I recall, when we spoke about how that, how the Met Project came to being, um, I recall that you had also kind of, you know, in the, on, the, on the side had been sort of sketching and working through some, um, some strategies uh, with these these dual um, these dual faces and the and the repetition and so it kind of ended up being a nice pairing was yeah that? yeah that yeah I would say I mean I I tend to I mean things kind of ebb and flow in my work and something goes away for a while and and then comes back in and over the past few years right before I wasn't doing as many multiple figures in a painting. Um, I became more and more interested in a painting and a purse, like, you know, a figure, trying to complicate that or on some level simplify it. Um, and so that turned into a lot of cropping to where basically the face of the painting was often the face of the figure. Uh, and yet when I'm doing that, I'm often drawing obsessively other stuff to kind of both get it out and I go, I just all constantly dip back into old sketchbooks and start to look for something like, oh, at the time there wasn't, there wasn't time or interest in making this piece, but then it'll seem like the perfect way to start uh, a new painting. So I had a few of these kind of on ice or, you know, back burner, whatever metaphor you want to go with that um, I knew at some point I wanted to do something with, but I... It, they felt like I'll have those and they feel kind of like really loaded and when all's going well for me in the studio I feel like I'm collecting some of those so that once I'm done with a body of work I'm working on at that time you can like shift and uh, just kind of start something else up anew so when the cozy thing happened I think at that time I just had enough I knew I wanted to work with uh and multiple figures in one kind of composition and on, on some level that's what they were about um, and uh, the play is about kind of has you know lovers wearing disguises trying to fool it so it's like duplicity deceit and and they're uh, sisters too yeah. yeah and of course a lot of that also seemed strange to be revisiting at this given moment in time because it's kind of like in the libretto, it's treated as kind of a, you know, cad behavior or something and uh, kind of battle of the sexes. And so for me, I just had wanted to, um, I don't know, simplify all of that, not make it about that kind of narrative, but more have a composition with 
at least two figures, but often four, and where on some level the um, details are interchangeable, but that that becomes the difference. So it's, you know, uh, playing for me with the idea of kind of masks and uh, opposites, difference. Well, yeah, and I think that that, that's a touch point for me personally when starting to dig deeper into these paintings. there's a lot of there's a lot of symbols, and some of the things that we well maybe not a lot but there is symbology in there. And we had just sharing with you all as well. We had some initial discussions too about um, in the history of painting. You know, there was a moment where uh, you know through religious painting primarily that there was a, a greater sort of visual literacy about what symbols meant so you know in medieval or renaissance you know going into a church the the average citizen most likely illiterate could still have a a level of understanding from what was being taught or um or shared in um in a painting whether it's the you know color usage hand gesture which i like to see this also as having this relationship to the Da Vinci Salvador Mundi painting, which was recently at auction and, you know, made a lot of, uh, I think it was like one of the most highly attended auction uh, showings. Exactly. Um, And then, you know, caught up in all kinds of scandal. But to think about breaking down the painting in a way to look at what some of these, um, some of these symbols are, what is the gesture of the finger? And how do you look at the, um, the face as well. I was thinking a lot about actually Jasper Johns, who I know that you we've we've touched on a few times. And I don't know if anyone saw the show at um, uh, at the Broad. I know you know some of you do, yeah. Uh, but you know he's all about symbols and no, you know there's no sort of uh, real. He won't say exactly what things mean. Uh, and there's a lot of interpretation. Historians have been stalking him for years trying to break the code, right? But if you look at, you know, some of those images, uh, he does bring in this double face, you know, that um, it's a, it's a, I forget what, what kind of image that is, but it's where you can see, you know, in the va- is it a vase, is it a chalice, or is it a profile? And so it, you know, I've seen it, and then also the, the ug- ugly woman or the beautiful woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It's like, how it's really about your perception of it and um, that there's always another side to things that sometimes you don't see or sometimes you you have to make it a point to see. Mm -hmm. And so when I was looking at this painting in particular and this this kind of double face, I started to also see it as one face Mm -hmm. and that it's it's two sides to one face or it's two faces Mm -hmm. or it's one view of two faces. So... um, it just it just brought me back to that sort of play on um, you know the other sides or, or what you're what you're seeing and what may the meaning may be there or you know you may not know what the meaning is um, but there's a, a certain yeah exactly <laughs> um, a certain a certain playfulness and and um, and uh, and flatness to it but I think um, I don't I mean maybe you want to touch on on Jasper Johns a little bit because I feel like there's there's some interesting stuff that you're looking at with his work as well. Yeah, I mean, especially when I was really young and just starting to notice 
art. I mean, I grew up in the Central Valley, and there really wasn't, uh, I wasn't seeing any art unless it came on, like, an album cover or maybe an interview magazine. Uh, <laughs> rest in peace. Yeah. Exactly. yeah um, so, and, and yet there were a few things that kind of filtered through that, and this would have been in the, I don't know, mid-80s or something when I was a teenager, and John's was one of those that just kind of, I can't even remember. It's like I feel like, you know, someone had a book, and you look through it, and it both at that time, I think, some early notion of seeing whether it was like Warhol and Johns and Rauschenberg, and it was already the 80s, so they had done a lot of work after what they were initially famous for. Um, so that kind of complicated it, but that's where you start. And I, with Johns in particular, what I think I found interesting was something... Um, I mean, it's almost like it's hermeneutics or something, that there is this the use of something that happened in painting for, especially in religious paintings, uh, for years of a kind of accepted vo visual vocabulary that, yeah, had various meanings. And yet, by the time of John's, I feel like it is this, it's more that yearning for significance or meaning um, that I feel in the repetition almost becomes it's like you see it there and yet you're it's also constantly eluding you um well i think there was a with john's i think there's also a lot of intentional obfuscation yeah 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 um, that it's really um you know especially having gone through the show you know there's that kind of gray dark period where i remember the guide was talking about his his breakup with with rauschenberg mm -hmm. and how you know it's like the piece is like liar and it's uh yeah it's you know it's like the twisted spoon and broken fork and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know you're like oh god who's the big spoon no um but uh and so i think yeah i mean i think that's a really interesting i i guess i get excited about those areas because i think there's yeah. a lot that you can kind of dig into and and i think that that has also added for me personally, like a level of mystery to your paintings in a way. So I've been, um, I've, it's been, you know, sort of a treat to be able to actually um, spend some time in the space with them and, okay. and, and, dig, and dig a little deeper. Yeah, I mean, one thing also that I would add in, one thing that's like inspirational for me from John's is his, like the, length of the cycles and then the repetition of right what I mean the amount that he's always still pulling from his own work um, which I find kind of bizarre and so generous at the same time and um, I think you know it's funny over the years having read some criticism of that which is always kind of like that it's empty or that he's like almost as if he's you know, spoiling the early work, and I mean, which I think is just ridiculous. Mm. Um, but I really also find that very appealing because it's to me, it's like a cow chewing on its cud to get like the full, you know, nutrition of something. Um, and who cares if people? I mean, I don't think one of the luxuries he had is a life that he set up in which he can keep making work that maybe people will celebrate him for, but also 
most people, if anything, are going to say like, oh, I know you made the flags, and that's kind of fine too, you know? Yeah, um, so I got kind of, I was a little, little dreamy there, <laughs> um, thinking about about that show. Um, and uh, I, actually, I'm back, going to backstep a little bit, um, going back to the, the Met Project and sort of this, oh, yeah. you know, so you started on this journey, mm-hmm. and then the fire. Yeah. So um, can you tell just a little bit about like that process of how you were able to kind of keep the keep the show keep working, but yet, yeah, you know, and as well as um, uh, I want to talk about the one thing that you that you took with you too. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah, I mean, when it came, like I'm sure most people here, it's like you don't see it happening until all of a sudden it's like, well, should we just pack up some shit and like get out of town? And we did, and. Um, luckily we had a place up in Cayucas that we could stay and got out and didn't really know what was happening. And, um, then it became obviously immediately apparent that it was going to be a little longer than, I mean, I thought it was going to be like overnight. They put stuff out or, you know, um, so it, it, we ended up, I think staying up there for three weeks and I came down at one point and my wife Siobhan came down uh, to do stuff a little later um, but I the good news was that push that I was saying I needed to do before just to make myself feel confident um, luckily the day before I had kind of you know one of the nice things about these uh, phones that are now computers is I had taken photos of everything so I was able to look at it and realize that in my like you know state of high anxiety had been incredibly productive, and I I knew that I had the bones of the show and that really I could kind of manage my time as long as it became one of these things. Speaking with them, they kept saying, "Oh, this is great. Let's do this, this, and that." And I just have to keep the kind of bizarre part of it was constantly reminding them that like. Provided the studio is still standing and my house is still standing, like, yeah, we'll do this project. Um, And, you know, luckily it all ended up, now it seems far in the past. Um, But I set up, I ended up setting up like a makeshift studio. There's like a garage kind of playroom that I just, you know, went out, bought a drop cloth and got new paints and uh, ended up working on part of the show up there. which I think was more just to give me something to do with my hands while waiting out the fire. Um, yeah, no, I, could, I know for many, yeah, it was definitely a, a, a stressful, stressful yeah. time, for sure. Yeah, and in a way, I think, yeah, a blessing to have a project to, to sort of throw yourself into. Yeah, that definitely for me ended up, I ended up feeling really grateful that like when I came back, it was very clear that I had a lot of work to get done quickly um, because otherwise, uh, I mean, how it's an easy time to fall into a funk if you, you know, aren't forced to be somewhere or doing something. And so if you would also share what was that 
one sort of important thing that you took with um, you? Yeah, well, my family, uh, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, yeah, I really didn't take, like someone, I think when we first talked about this was in the context of someone saying, like, did you pack up your studio? Yeah, did you take all, all your paintings? Yeah. I was like, no, I didn't take a single thing other than I, um, <coughs> last year, had it, I own a small little forest best painting, and I threw that in a box and <laughs> put a bunch of stuff on top of it and figured uh, whatever happens to everything else, like at this point, it, I feel like I'm a steward of this, you know, someone else's work. And and I, I also very much feel like I'm still learning from that painting. And I've always kind of fantasized about being able to live with paintings or artworks that have a lot of personal significance for you but that's often not something that can happen I think through generationally unless you know obviously some artists figure that out but um, in this some I luckily ended up coming into ownership of this painting and so yeah well yeah and so just hearing you speak to that I think um, it's also it's illustrative of um, of your process in the studio in a way too. I think like um, you know his when you walk into his studio, he's got work that he's working on, but then there is sort of like kind of mini. It's a mini little retrospective that <laughs> keeps changing of past work or works in progress, um, and I think it's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting strategy to sort of look at maybe a painting from that you did maybe 10 years ago or something like that while you're working on a new piece and maybe you can mm -hmm. kind of touch on that and then you have there's a wall of um self-portraits too over the years yeah, yeah. that's only up there that's, uh, that was kind of when you were and, the, and that is funny but i mean yeah. you're right yeah, with like strategy that, yeah. yeah and that was up there on some level because I remember also the first time you came by was a period where I think I had just shipped a big body of work and then you're starting another and so on some level Oh yeah, that was for the um, show yeah, Corbett versus Dumpster. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so sometimes you know, there's this kind of cliche of, that I feel like culturally people talk about like the blank slate or like the blank canvas and you know, it's always used in this really positive way of like, oh, yeah, we're just starting out on a blank canvas. And to I hate a blank canvas. Like, I mean, it's just, I like to respond to something. So on some level, like, I need there to be um, a few things that just happen. I like to really bypass, like, conscious thought, which is one reason I think repetition is so important to me, is that on some level, it feels like staying in shape. Uh, it's like, okay, I'm just going to work all these up to a certain point, and then I'll start thinking about all these avenues that I didn't take at some other point, or, you know, you, I mean, you kind of sense them. It's, it's, to me, sometimes it's a little more like, uh, well, I hesitate to say like dream mind, but it is that thing of, I know I've been here before, and it doesn't feel particularly inspired to be in the same place. And then that kind of becomes more uh, what keeps me going is uh, somehow finding a 
for me, what feels to me personally a deeper space within something that already, at the time, I think I thought I had figured out. Um, and then sometimes it's more like, for instance, self-portraits, when you sit, it's nothing I've ever exhibited, and yet it's every now and then. I like, I tend to make a lot of paintings that also I wouldn't really exhibit. They're more to kind of playing with different ideas, or at least until they accumulate in some way, I wouldn't be interested. And around that time when you were there, it was kind of funny. I was just moving things around the studio, and it's it's as simple as doing the dumbest thing I can, which is, where are all the self-portraits? Um, and put them up next to each other. Because on some level, it's only an accumulation of something like that that makes me even able to think about them. Because um, otherwise, it, it just feels like a random part of your going through a daily act of painting, which is, to me, what's significant of being an artist internally is just the day-to-day process. I mean, it's going in, starting back up, and yeah, like, paintings happen, exhibitions happen, people either like them or don't like them, um, but I'm still painting. Uh, well, yeah, and I, I, I guess I see that almost as, as their, like, guideposts that they're, or, you know, those friends from the past or something that, that, um, that marks time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, when I was younger, I think I was more interested in like, uh, not narrative was never very important to me, but some idea of maybe it's just storytelling through painting. And I have zero interest in telling stories. I have 100% interest in painting and making images mainly, intending to an image and seeing kind of what happens with just making images. Uh, and of course there can be any narrative, but that's like for any viewer to have or free associate. Um, but to me it feels, you know, uh, in some I- ideal way, I'd like to think that these are the same as going back to, you know, cave paintings, to religious iconography, that it all, on some level, a visual artist is responding to the life they live in, the times they live in, and also something that feels much more, I mean, to me, feels archetypal. Um, yeah, I feel like, actually, cave paintings, just in, in some of the conversations I've been having recently, has been, it, it's been coming up, and I don't know, <laughs> when, maybe it's the time we're in, but, um, you know, to... <laughs> I, I, I can't remember the exact factoid, but it's something like they've analyzed, you know, all the cave paintings they've found so far, and there's something like 20 or 30 marks that are common to all these these right. these areas, and that, you know, oftentimes there's the handprint, too. Right, there's right. the hand gesture, there's the, the you know, there's that, that sort of, that mark of, of, of the artist or of the human, of the, the sort of very human gesture but then I also heard that um, they found a lot of children's footprints in the in the mud or dirt or whatever so I think there's an interesting um, moment there where sort of like visual art as sort of a ritual 
um, kind of coming of age, maybe, or some sort of, um, you know, uh, having some sort of life importance to it, right. and not necessarily being a, a separate practice. Right, right. And <clears throat> it reminded me of um, traveling in, in Guatemala and um, learning from Maya and what, and, and what um, they're working on, and the fact that in, you know, in the indigenous language, there's no, uh, there's not a word for art. That it's, you know, nice. it's, it's life. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It, there's no sort of um, distinction. So I think, uh, just I don't know, just kind of going back to those like those the, earlier yeah. times where there's not so much um, distinction or that it's really, you know, showing that sort of the early origins of art really being about humanity right. and human expression and, you know, the, yes, the, the need that this is part of some, um, you know, in, in hum, makes us human sort of thing, yeah, yeah. right, that we have. Um, so going from um, cave painting uh, to the complete opposite, um, but really looking at how you situate yourself in California. Like how do you sort of, you know, we've had conversations about the L.A. scene, and um, which I loved, um, loved sharing as well as learning. Um, but, you know, you've, you've obviously, you've, you've been in the region for a while, so... And you know, you some of your I think your first show was at, was it at Mark Fox or? or um, was, I had a few before then, oh, but okay. it was, I do feel like that kind of changed things. I had shown a little when I was living in Chicago, and then I kind of had one of those uh, in the '90s. I had a handful of shows in Tokyo, and that was kind of what I was doing. Big in Japan, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but. It, that show certainly something shifted for me as far as my own experience of feeling like oh there's a world that might be interested there I had certainly dealt with people who seemed interested but it seemed like a very very small group of people so it, you know I don't know that the sense of there being a larger world that might want to peek in at what you're doing I think started in LA Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I think that you, you know, are in some of these exhibitions that you, some of these sort of seminal group exhibitions you've been in too, they, they are contextualizing you as, you know, an L, a LA, yeah. California artist. So yeah. what is that, you know, I don't know, what does that mean to you being here? God, it's so complicated. <laughs> uh, you can give us the, the, the light version. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's, I absolutely identify as a Californian so that part is really simple um, but at the same time uh, that became really clear to me when I lived in Chicago I lived in Chicago for basically 10 years and I loved it and uh, wasn't particularly looking to move away from it or to move back and at a certain point though I think it was right uh, coincidentally I was turning 30 and it became clear as far as painting was going for me at that time I felt really good about I had left the gallery I had worked with there that had felt kind of traumatic this stuff was going on in Tokyo um, and I felt really good about what was going on in the studio and I really felt like I needed to find a different place to 
show it. Uh, and it, 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 be, it had become clear while living in Chicago that people in New York and people in LA both seemed to think you kind of, if you were a younger artist, I think they needed to see you there or something, uh, which I had always figured it would seem so interesting to find an artist who didn't live there and be able to show them. Um, so it just felt like a decision at a certain point that you kind of had that it was either New York or LA and I love New York. I used, I mean, it's an amazing city, but at that point, I think I realized if I move to New York, I'll maybe do that for five, ten years at the most. But being a Californian, I felt like I would always want to be back here. Um, but then also growing up in the Central Valley uh, was a strange way to say you're Californian when you're, because um, it's, you know, it's not the beach, it's not San Francisco, and that's where we would always go. But I mean, when I was really young, you'd go to Fresno for, you know, like, the city so um, so all of it it was definitely a more vague California uh, which is still how I feel and I mean I think probably a large part of ending up here where somehow it feels a little more loosely defined or uh, in the art with art I also just liked a lot of space and time and privacy and I mean I'm kind of a pretty much a loner as far as you know I go into a studio and like to have several hours every day where I work alone and then maybe go back to your family and then maybe interface with the world a little bit <laughs> but in LA that always just seemed hard to balance your life it just seemed faster that, to me than it needed to be as a painter. I Personally, for me as a painter, this if I can make my life go pretty slow, the work opens up more quickly and more fully. Or that's been my experience. I mean, it might just be a story I'm telling myself. <laughs> um, so besides... Uh... LA and, and Japan, have you have you found some affinity with other other cities or other cultures in your in your journeys showing as an artist? Well, I mean I love to travel. I don't know that I feel I also feel like I'm not the best traveler. I love to travel. Um, I love Paris, but I don't speak French. <laughs> but I love spending time in France. I mean as a painter, there's, I very much, that's a important touchstone for me. And at some point, it's been a long time now, I think it was 2003 or so, I, uh, Siobhan and I lived for, I think, five months on Monet's estate. And um, it was like a odd residency, yeah, yeah. a little residency where they give you a studio. And the best part of it was you, had like the key to get into the garden after hours so even though all those tour buses would come and fill up and do everything um, then they would all leave you know at five o'clock the place closes and the town is just empty and you kind of go over there and walk around but it, it it was also kind of strange because Monet was never a 
super significant painter for me on a mm -hmm. personal level. Um, that would have been more, you know, Manet and, and then Matisse and certainly Picasso. But so, I mean, basically I would, like often happens wherever I am, it would become Monday through Friday, like super blocked out work hours. And then Friday we would take the train into Paris and stay there for the weekend or go down to Nice for a week. And I mean, it was an amazing experience, especially going into Paris every weekend. And the one thing I really miss, for instance, being here or not in a city is that being able to visit the same piece over and over in a museum, getting over that sense of like, I'm in this city, I'm going to see everything in this museum and more having that like, oh, for weeks, I'll go back and see this one or two or three pieces over and over. Uh, and that, to me, that's very like, I mean, that feels like a radical well, I wonder if it's not because you also went to the School of the University of Chicago that you had that experience. Because I remember, you know, being able to walk through, Absolutely. you know, the museum every day. And it's still the only school that actually has a museum of that caliber. Yeah, you just can, like, walk in. I know later, after I got my MFA, like, a, year, a few years later, I taught some undergrad painting there. And it was incredible. I mean, you just, you're working with someone and you're trying to explain something. And rather than... You know, this would have been pre-internet, so it's not like you'd bring it up anyways, but be like, okay, let's just walk down this hallway. And, and the, the, the Kaya bot. Yeah, exactly. The, like, it's ins yeah. it's insanity. So do you... Do and you, that's pretty wild for a Californian, I feel like, to experience that. Um, where, obviously, in Europe or something, where these cities were, it just made more sense that you'd kind of have, be more centrally located or... So, do you are there any paintings that you recall from the um, the museum that that struck you as a as a student or a teacher during those times? In uh, at the Chicago, RC, at the RC, yeah, RC. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's they have an incredible Philip Guskin painting that um, is one of the earliest big versions of the late painting, early, <laughs> but uh, it's after he had basically been doing the kind of like singular like noun paintings for quite a while, and then. He, like in 1969 when he started to combine them all up and they have a really crazy one that's um, it particularly plays up the kind of all over composition that I think related a lot to like, paintings he had done before but that meant a lot for to me there's also the, uh, the Hockney uh, Beverly Hills Collectors oh yeah um, that iconic yeah yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there's Matisse, uh, Baders by the River, which, I mean, is just, like, an unbelievable painting and was pretty much always up. Um, a few years ago, they ended up doing an entire, the, the huge Matisse exhibition they had was based around that painting and around the production of it. So that was also great. Uh, I went back just to see that. Yeah, and I, I think we, we talked about this a little bit, too, but just... In some of those artists that you're speaking about, there is a certain, I think, flatness to it, and and um, but also a sort of pictorial space, is mm -hmm. what, you know, which I I see how how that sort of translates with with or is reinterpreted with your work, and and um, and how um, yeah, I mean, bringing up Picasso again, I mean, I feel like there is still such a strong legacy, and I think that for I guess 
you know, just looking at kind of the, the for lack of better words, the landscape of painters or painting right now, um, you know, I think that, uh, that there's perhaps a lot more sort of, well, I guess it's a different type of historical lineage, I guess, is my point. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That there's... Um, you mean that people are coming from? Yes, or? yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I don't know. I, I guess that, I guess I'm actually still, I, I, I guess I'm actually still or surprised in some way that there's still work to be done with that in a way, you know, because I think there is, and I didn't necessarily think about it, but I think the converse, with the conversations we've been having, I see that there's, st it's still a very rich, verdant ground of investigation. Right. Um, and that there's still ways to kind of pull things out of it that you tweak with your own voice and your own um, style. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess the more I, the more I look at a painting like this, the more I see like Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, you know, and the, the masks, you know, the, the, you're looking also with, I don't know, I see like, you know, uh, early Cubist things too. And, and, and then it gets back to this idea of like multifaceted, you know, you can't quite see everything at the same time. You have to sort of see the old lady or you see the right, right. young lady. You can't yeah. see both at the yeah, same time. Totally. <clears throat> and, that part really appeals to me because I mean, I agree when I finished or when I started doing these, especially doing the show for Kosi, I mean, cubism, of course, was always like obviously hovering in some space, but I knew the only way I would make those paintings or even speak to that is by kind of like backing up into them rather than like I knew I didn't have anything to say about cubism by studying more cubism and trying to, you know, take it further or something. And especially because even if I think of my undergrad education at like Berkeley and um, like, you know, with like TJ Clark teaching and there's like a very, a way of looking at a kind of lineage of modernism that I feel like whether I agree with it or don't agree with it, I agree with it in that it's one interesting way of unpacking all of this and looking at it. I don't agree with it in terms of it as being like actually an evolution. Um, so basically my kind of dealing with some notion of cubism would have to be like accidental. Um, but then I was really excited to get to my and realize like, okay, I am dealing with this and it's both unconscious and then it becomes semi-conscious and then you have to find uh, exactly this kind of, how do I treat this, keep it open-ended, but also have enough rigor to keep pushing it. Um, and to me, that's about not personally with these, on some level, they're so um, mundane and they're uh, obviously the flatness and everything, and they're not extreme in any way. And yet just by kind of limiting the choices and then playing with things and playing with the palette, um, playing with basically all the formal issues, at a certain point, I really do, as close to as like clock out conscious thought, 
because I'm just allowing myself uh, to go through these various like variations. Um, and then one becomes, oh, that was kind of interesting when that actually became a little more saturated and I would have avoided that because I thought it would become too, I don't know, too quick of a read or something. And then you do it and it's like, oh, that's actually kind of interesting. So then you turn it up on the next painting and it either does or doesn't resonate for me. And I feel like if it's resonating for me, there's usually, it seems like a pretty decent chance it resonates with some others. And some people, it like, you know, they really, really do not want to see them, don't appreciate it. And I really like that. I mean, I, I think for an image, I mean, to make painting alive uh, now, when it's completely has nothing to do with being an important mode of communication culturally. Um, well, yeah, though we, we've spoken to that, how we've lost, we've lost so much sort of visual, uh, culturally, so much visual literacy in terms of how we understand it. Or I guess maybe on some level we've gained it because we're so oversaturated with images. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but at the same time, uh, certain meanings definitely have been lost or, or, or replaced. Yeah. Um, and well, we certainly burn through images. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. For better or worse. Exactly. Like however many billions of photos there are on Flickr, you know, or right now, um, Instagram, which is kind of a, a little thread I wanted to draw through um, with the way you use Instagram. And, um, you know, I encourage you all to, to follow him. It, it's fun. Um, there's some surprises. But when you were speaking to your process just now of sort of working through systems and, and, and structures, uh, I, I recall recently you... Uh, and actually, this might have popped up a few times before, but sort of the, these like out, just like simple line drawings mm. of the faces and sort mm -hmm. of the flipping and the the, multi the multiplying mm -hmm. and and I noticed that they're in black and white. It's pencil or pen mm -hmm. on um, on paper to sort of sort of work out those those systems. And so um, I guess my my question to you is: At what point does that does that does color come in? Right. At what yeah, point do you yeah. start looking at these in color, and or is it that you spoke to where you sort of kind of blank, blank out, and just it's instinctual? Is is that really it, or are there other color strategies that you're um, thinking probably a about? little bit of both? I guess what I mean by that is that I set up enough variations that are thought about, but I don't really know where the, whether they're going to work out, or I mean, it's like loose parameters, um, and then I just kind of keep working through them. And the, the drawing, I mean, everything comes at different times. And often, if I'm stuck in a painting, I just go and draw somewhere else. Um, and with these in particular, like those, uh, it's funny because I'm actually just with someone else finishing editing a little book about, like, that whole kind of process um, of both drawings that I realize there's like a whole slew of drawings that I don't think of as drawings and 
tell again it's like an accumulation later where you're looking because some are on tracing paper or vellum and then normal paper and and it will just be flipping these trying to find all these possible compositions and do it quickly enough where I'm not thinking at all about it being successful or in any way and then later you kind of start filtering through them and sometimes the ones that seem like a big hot mess like actually are the ones that are generating something resonant and so I'll start to you know it's basically I see it all as you're kind of always in the whole studio is this big boat and everything that becomes interesting is just kind of testing your dedication to like do I really want to keep I mean my instinct is always to doubt some big part of what I'm doing so then in setting this stuff up when it feels bad you doubt it all and you think what am I doing so you start looking for all these other avenues um, and then usually you kind of go work on one thing and it all comes together and then I feel like total joy and you just kind of that spills over into something else I mean it's so imprecise um, but again to me that's just more the way that studio life is like this microcosm I mean it is your normal life I, like I love this idea earlier about not having a word for art because we absolutely do and it's a kind of charged word and sometimes it seems pretty insignificant or put too high on a pedestal um, I never quite know what to do with that other than I find the daily act of painting I mean it's much more to me akin to something like at some I mean there's like a meditative quality to mm -hmm. it but there's also like sweeping the porch um, which can be meditative I know <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I feel like I really went off topic there but. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's good and actually you know thinking about art in the sort of more expanded inclusive um, space is maybe a nice place to, to wrap up as well um, so I think we have time for maybe one or two questions if there's anybody who'd like to yes Jeff yeah, I'm curious about the opera notion where you're at with it and were there challenges scaling up to uh, you know mm -hmm. be viewed from a distance yeah no it actually um, I, I should have stressed that earlier it wasn't part of the um, stage mm -hmm. it was a, a gallery show that's in the space that was kind of uh, in tandem with it and it was supposed to be more my I don't know artistic response to the opera itself um, and then the only thing I really had to think about that way was we did make there was like a 45 foot banner to make on the front of the Metropolitan Opera itself, which was amazing to me to be in Lincoln Plaza. And um, so that became more a, a legit logistical concern. I was able to figure out what I, an image I thought would work and it was more than needing to find the people who knew how to photograph it and blow it up on a level that could make one of those banners. But which, I mean, that part was, really fascinating otherwise the scale of it 
was a scale that I pretty much already worked. There was one uh, large four-figure painting that I made that was at the top of the kind of grand stairwell, and which was really fun because, I mean, it's all like, you know, red carpet that then just goes and continues up the walls and then they just hang the painting on velvet red ropes and they light it in a way that's I mean horrifying as a painter but I had to say fascinating because I mean it was just like these harsh lights and it really did look like a light box when you were walking up this incredible stairwell there's just this glowing crazy and it's got two like malal sculptures on either side and you know it's like pure elegance but I, I mean to me it just made me laugh the whole time because I thought I never expected to see my paintings in this context but and uh, my wife and I went out a few weeks later because it was a strange thing where the show opened and then the opera opened a few weeks after that because they just wanted to have it up in the meantime but it was being able to be in that space which is so incredible with that many people and the night we went you know the it was sold out and seeing that many people milling around right and it just dawned on me at that moment it's like oh i don't think there's ever been this many eyes on any single thing i've ever made because that's not i mean gallery spaces more and more it's a you know the tribe that's going or it's a small and then of course there's the like art fair phenomenon so i'm sure a lot of eyes do that but it's still over like three days where this was a few months and uh it's up even when all the other operas are going so you have thousands and thousands and thousands of tourists or new yorkers or uh, and then to have it on the building i to me it was just kind of a I don't know. It was really fun. It was really satisfying. It's, uh, I didn't. I I was so excited when I was asked, and it definitely pushed me though to this part where I wasn't sure I was going to be able to. Uh, I don't know. Make sense in that context, and I personally I was really happy with how it came out. So. Anybody else? Yeah, question. Can you talk, talk a little bit about what your thoughts were when you were making this painting and what you were trying to uh, articulate? Hmm. That's it. Yeah, I mean, on some level, it probably goes back to a lot of these things we're talking about, which it's, it is this composition that I've been repeating, refining, whatever, uh, for a while now and I think to me it, it has become literally playing a lot with this the sense of to me it's thinking of a face of a painting a face and on some level trying to use if you count these things like two I mean almost like a simple preschool thing of like people have two eyes you've got a nose you've got lips and then somehow shoehorning like two people into that to where it's almost like you know uh, putting your heads together literally i mean the pun um but beyond that i mean it's kind of i don't have an overly strong sense of what i think 
it's supposed to do beyond get you like looking at it and contemplating what it even is. Uh, and on some level, I mean, that's for me the repetition thing is that I feel often I'm surprised that you can kind of just by like micro tightening the tension or loosening it at times and that a lot comes from that like these slight variations as opposed to certainly when I was young I think I thought every painting has to be this whole new like otherwise you're a hack um, and I over time I realized I'd rather be called a hack and experience the same thing kind of at a deeper level personally that may for other people be more shallow you know mm -hmm. that's all right mm -hmm. <laughs> well thank you thank you brian and thank you everyone for thank coming you. and joining our conversation